0: Happy New Year and welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been a redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at BellFlight.com. Today, we're going to take a look at what our expert panel thinks are going to be the big stories of 2022. This is the third year to start with the world grappling with COVID as the Omicron variant continues its worldwide scourge, supplanting the Delta variant. To date, COVID has killed more than 825,000 Americans and 5.4 million worldwide. During this holiday season, uh, the Omicron variant in, uh, combined with bad uh, weather led to the cancellation of thousands of flights across the United States uh, because of staffing shortfalls and again because of the weather. Meanwhile, markets remain concerned about rising inflation. Airbus outsold and outdelivered Boeing last year, and the Biden administration is pressing ahead with a series of strategic reviews that some in Washington fear will become justifications to cut defense spending. Before we get started, check out our two weekly podcasts, CAVUS Ships, that takes a deep dive into all things naval and maritime with our contributing editor, Christopher P. CAVUS and our producer, Chris Servello. And on the Downlink podcast, our contributing editor, Laura Winter, takes us through the top space issues of the week, Check them out. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And joining us as they do each week uh, are Dr. Rocketron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tuza of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia, now of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy uh, in Ann Arbor, Michigan, as well as here in sunny Washington, or not so sunny, um, pre-storm Washington, D.C. Happy New Year, everybody, and thanks so very, very much for joining us and hope you all had great holidays.
1: Yeah,
2: great to be here, Vago. Thanks.
1: Yeah, thank you very much, Nate. Vago. Happy New Year to you all.
3: Happy New Year, Vago. Great to be back.
0: Uh, great to have you guys uh, on back. It was a, a long uh, hiatus. Uh, I want to get to the big stories uh, that we think are going to be shaping 2022. We did a little bit of that on our last show of the year. Uh, But I also want to ask you guys to sort of start off right during the holidays. There were a a whole bunch of interesting stories that developed. Two of my favorites are McDonald's rushing uh, three 747 freighter loads of potatoes to Japan to keep stores from running out of uh, the company's signature French fries. And the other was Denmark wanting to be out of fossil fuels. Uh, by uh, 2030, and of course, we have to also pay attention to all the stuff that's been happening with Russia and Ukraine. Ron, start us off, uh, and then I want to get Sash and, and Richard, uh, your guys' take, holiday stories that caught your attention that people may have missed. Go ahead, Ron.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'll start with the, the market stuff. I mean, if you look at the S&P, uh, the S&P 500 uh, was up 27%, um, just a smidge under 27% in 2021, um, and that's the third straight positive year. Um, If you look at, you know, the Dow, uh, the NASDAQ, respectively, they were up 19%, 21%. So it was a humongous year for um, uh, equity markets. And that just raises the question, you know, what happens in 2022, right? I mean, you know, the the year-over-year comp gets gets difficult for just, you know, broad market performance. As you highlighted in your, you know, your preparatory remarks, uh, inflation is, you know, still a question in everybody's minds. So it's supply chains and, and, and so on and, and so forth. Uh, I guess the, the things that maybe jumped out at me, I mean, things were pretty status quo when it ended the year broadly for a and but we had a couple different approvals for the 737 MAX by different governments into the end of the year. So um, that probably opens up some opportunities for Boeing to deliver a couple more airplanes uh, as we go into 2022. Um, it'll be challenged, obviously, by the, the COVID situation internationally. Um, but with the approval, of, I think it was three governments that approved the 737 MAX uh, for operations again. Um, We'll open up some more places for aircraft to go back into service, and obviously we'll give probably a little bit more footing underneath deliveries.
0: Sash, I want to go to you, right? I mean, one of the interesting stories was uh, Airbus and and, uh, Boeing, Airbus beating Boeing. I don't think that was a surprise in the wake of everything that we saw uh, over the course of the last year, but what I thought was interesting uh, right As our focus tends to be on, on China, Russia has about 100,000 troops in and around Ukraine and demanding that NATO not add uh, any new members. And that's prompted Finland to again reiterate, and this is not a new position, that if it wants to join the Atlantic Alliance, it will. Um, Finnish President Sauli Ninisto is the one who made that uh, statement. I believe the prime minister reiterated it as well. And Ninisto rightly quoted Henry Kissinger in arguing that taking military options off the table in Ukraine is very, very problematic, saying, quote, Whenever avoidance of war has been the primary objective of a group of powers, the international system has been at the mercy of its most most ruthless member, and obviously that would be Russia. Walk us through some of the interesting themes and stories uh, of, of the break from your standpoint before we get to what the big issues of the coming year are going to be.
1: Yeah, OK. Um, I mean, let's you know, start with uh, uh, you know, Airbus beating Boeing is actually quite interesting because Boeing had a ton of 737s to, to resell this year. Hang on, hang on um, a second.
0: Hang on a second. Should I just ask you what you think and just leave it at that?
1: No, no, that's fine. No, no, no. I'll I'll, I'll just deal with those two. I mean, otherwise, I'll I'll be be here all all month and that'll be more prepared. I'll just just deal with those two. Okay. So, three, two, one. Um, Yeah. You know, Airbus beating Boeing uh, is interesting for a a number of reasons. I mean, Boeing had a lot of 737s to sell or resell this year. uh, And one would assume that they would have, you know, at least made some pricing adjustments adjustments to make sure they cleared some stock uh, and they should be delivering those at a much higher rate as we go into 2022 let's see but actually it's been the year when airbus started raising production early and has been um doing very very well on on sales an interesting thing you know just over the uh the break was aviation capital group um committing you know 48 20 neos yeah fine but actually 28 220s I'm beginning to feel, and I know that Richard's written about this, that the A220 is starting to become a pretty real aircraft. You know, put Airbus's marketing behind it and the promise that at some stage there's going to be a Dash 500 there that will eat right into 77 MAX 7 territory. And uh, lessors and airlines are looking at that aircraft with much more seriousness than they ever did when it was a Bombardier product. So, you know, the big issue for 2022, in our view, is going to be uh you know, which of the two OEMs actually can can meet its production rate increases? And, you know, what, what does it look like in terms of steady or relatively steady state production uh in the second half of this year? And Airbus is on, on the way to, to mid-60s, they clearly love to get higher in terms of narrow, their A320 neo-production rates. Can Boeing get to, to 31 a month? Um or actually is it just going to take longer? And I mean, this comes back to the point that Ron was alluding to, which is supply supply chain challenges and who actually gets worst hit or which firms get worst hit. Really, probably not by people being that ill, but by a a huge impact from uh, the Omicron variant in terms of people who have to take seven, 10 days off and and shield and so forth. Um, Come to the Ukraine now. Uh, You know, the Ukraine is becoming very, very serious. Russia is, putting in place a military uh, level of preparedness in terms of force structures that would enable it to launch very, very high-intensity military operations. Uh, And President Putin has been talking about the fact that Ukraine... It has always been Russia, should never have been allowed to be uh, an independent state and so forth. This is very, very worrying stuff. And I think it's to the discredit in particular of Germany. And this is really you know, something that I don't think Angela Merkel will be seen, this will not be seen as being one of the best bits of her legacy. Germany has been very supine in this, in this uh, area. I wonder whether the Schultz uh, government is going to be uh, rather more hawkish in in this regard. But as you you rightly point out, the Finnish prime minister um, has uh, responded to Putin's demand that no new nations be allowed to join NATO, and Putin's demand was aimed at Ukraine specifically. But Finland said in Finnish, "Hell no!" You know, if we wish the Finns to become uh, a NATO member, we will do, and. Uh, a number of the Baltic states have said it's in all of our interests for Sweden and Finland to become NATO members. Uh, and I think you know, it's going to be very interesting, and it's frankly a bit nail-biting as to the degree to which this is enough to call Russia's bluff, or whether the Russians just you know, call our bluff, and in, in which case, you know, what can the West, and specifically what can uh, Europe do, to stop a Russian invasion, or indeed to blunt a Russian invasion of the Ukraine?
0: Uh, that is a, a very good question that I'm sure uh, people in capitals uh, everywhere are, are asking themselves, right? And the, and the Germans may have made their situation worse, right? Because the government made good on closing uh, a number of nuclear power plants, right? I think half of the nuclear power plants now have been closed and the other half are going to continue. So if anything, Germany is becoming even more dependent on Russian sources of energy.
1: Yeah, and also uh, Germany has a particular um, uh, allergy to onshore uh, wind turbines. I mean, it's it's not quite as bad as, as France, but they 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 have a much uh lower uh, amount of onshore capacity for for wind power, and hence they don't have that sort of balancing uh um effect in terms of uh zero carbon uh power generation.
0: Richard, bring you into what you thought were uh, interesting stories, whether Boeing, Airbus, or travel, or anything else that we may have missed.
3: Yeah, boy, so much going on. This was a. Uh... Aeronautically rich year in terms of news and in terms of ideas. I guess two big themes, following on to uh, a number of things that uh, that Seth said, you know, about the aviation capital group order. You know, we hit yet another high in terms of the role of third-party finance in the jetliner market. I believe above fifty percent, and I wonder if we're not going to start getting into a feedback loop where people like to finance things. Um, that are perceived of as financeable and popular, which means, you know, there'll be winners and not so winners and market shares will get locked in that way. So everyone will want to finance an A321 NEO or perhaps an A220 now, as it, as Sash said, as it is getting to be it in the real aircraft program territory, but they won't really want to find in something marginal like a 737 MAX 9, or for that matter, I think they might be wary of a 7 x at this point because of the relatively limited number of potential users. So you're gonna have a market that's even more biased in favor of single aisles. You're gonna have a market that even more favors winners, and you're gonna have a market share that's gonna skew more heavily into Airbus territory uh, as a result of this, this sort of third-party finance loop, uh, feedback loop that keeps going until Boeing does something. And that said, another theme, boy, a year of what at Boeing? I mean, it, it, where is there any evidence of leadership and a desire to make a, what appears to be a difficult situation, to put it gently, better? That's, I think, the very biggest theme of all. When Dave Calhoun came in, I guess we're looking at almost two years, um i wrote in one of my notes you know he could either be the world's best one-year ceo but if he stays beyond that oh dear well here it is um so he's got kind of a choice here either uh well leave or lead show some leadership and uh do things and especially a new jed or break up the company (laughs) which is conceivable or status quo which would be disastrous so i think that's another big theme third big theme Boy, uh, everything Sash said about the Ukraine. It's not just the, I mean, it, there's serious trouble in, surprise, surprise, Eastern Europe. There's serious trouble in the Mideast. Uh, there's serious trouble in the Western Pacific. Um, not to say hooray for weapons markets, but this is all very good for air power. You know, you look at the actual requirements of warfighting. Um, You know, frankly, you can make a strong argument that missiles are a better better investment. But given the uncertainties of the conflicts that are evolving and well, yeah, places like the Ukraine, air power looks like the one great place you can invest and be relevant, whether it's a face-off, whether it's a counterinsurgency, whether it's a no-fly zone enforcement, or if it's a full-up shooting war. In, uh, In other words, you cover all your bases with air power, and that's what's driving the combat aircraft market to a new high this year Um, with, of course, most recently that record order for French Rafales from the UAE. And you'll see more, obviously Finland. Uh, And I I think it's going to be a number of record years for the jet fighter market. And turning to the Pacific, what is sort of interesting is how accelerated the Australian air power teaming program with Boeing is going. Um, That's kind of one of the the loyal,
0: the loyal wingman program.
3: Yes, that's exactly right. And you know, I think in terms of operating software, it's probably way premature, but the fact that they've highlighted that as a necessary priority, given the, the quantitative realities of the Western Pacific, I think is very telling and gonna be really key for that market to see how that program evolves.
0: Uh, Ron, I, I wanna uh, bring you uh, a minute into this, uh, Sash, because I know that uh, you've got uh, stuff that you wanna add, but I wanna go back to Ron. Um, So what do you think are gonna be some of the other big stories uh, of the year, Right, I mean, you talked about markets, inflation, and supply chain, and we talked a little bit about that. But as you look forward into, into 2022, uh, right. Richard touched on a lot of things, right? I mean, he touched on decoupling, there may be economic uh, ramifications, right? I mean, if there are no military ramifications on, on Russia, there may be economic uh, ramifications uh, with the Iranians, right? They're doing missile tests, or, or excuse me, they launched the satellite, but we, we know that the Iran is never trying to launch a satellite, right? There's an ulterior motive. Uh, as as a general rule, they're increasing uranium enrichment, so that adds instability on on energy uh, going going forward. I mean, what do you think are going to be some of the interesting stories? What are you going to be tracking? What do you think our audience should be paying attention to?
2: Yeah, so excuse me on the defense side. Um, clearly, um, a couple things. One, it's an election year, uh, and generally during election years, um, with some exceptions, very few exceptions. Um, it's pretty good for defense, right? I mean, I would be astonished if anybody wanted to cut defense during an election year. In fact, if you look at how uh, so far the, the process for the 2022 budget has, has played out, at least the NDAA, um, I would imagine you'll see a similar thing happen in, in for the 2023 budget, where you'll get um, uh, pretty meaningful plus ups in Congress. Uh, that said, on the 2022 process, we have an NDAA, NDAA, but one of the things I'm keeping an eye on is uh, the continuing resolution. Do we end up with a full year resolution or not? Again, and that plays into the political dynamics around the elections and what the Republicans want to do. Um, so, anyway, I think you know, given all the commentary from both you know, Sasha and Richard, it's it's becoming you know, abundantly obvious that you know the world isn't becoming any more peaceful and. Um, the backdrop for defense weapon spending across aircraft ships, you name it, um, um, looks pretty robust. So for the 2023 budget process, I'm looking for it to be a little bit better than 2022. Um, and, you know, in no small part because it's an election year. So that's one thing we're keeping an eye on. The second thing is, you know, we're, we're in a it's incontrovertible that, you know, air traffic is going to pick up. It's been picking up. People want to travel, but it's been complicated as we've been saying now for quite some time by, by COVID and just sort of the tone and tenor and how things play out. Um, you know, is it, you know, how, how, does the international piece really play out? That's the big question, right? That's two thirds of, of, of global air traffic is the cross border stuff. Um, we're still sticking with our forecast that you get back to, 2019 levels sometime in 2023 and on an annual basis in 2024. Um, and, you know, that, you know, if it were to be pulled forward or pushed out is really predicated on what happens with the cross-border traffic and and these different variants. You know, hopefully once we get through Omicron, that's the worst of it. But we'll see. Who knows? Um, I'm certainly not in a seat to make make those predictions right now. And then what impacts that has on um, the commercial aftermarket. And then then maybe changing gears a little bit. Uh, we saw a lot of activity in the commercial space markets uh, in 2021. I'm expecting that to continue into 2022. We could see even more companies go public in commercial space, and those that are our public will be executing in 2022. So uh, many of the companies that are a very early stage company, each each companies each quarter is yet one more piece of the puzzle of the execution of their business model. So I think 2022 will be a, an important year for the evolution of commercial space. And then finally, eVTOL, right, where we'll be another year into eVTOL. Um, companies will have more vehicles flying, more testing going on. And I think maybe we'll learn a little bit more about you know wh- who's in the best position or not and how that whole market plays out.
0: Do do you think that just before before we move on, um, space, the number of satellites in space has doubled something in the last decade, right? But SpaceX has been shooting off a lot of Starlink uh, satellites uh, to the point where astronomers are complaining about it. And whereas it's very easy to look at China as a problem and hypocritical by talking about, you know, irresponsibility in space, especially because they've blown up satellites that have caused enormous debris fields start two Starlink satellites, I think, had close calls with the Chinese space station that had to maneuver out of the way. And there are some fairly hawkish people who are looking at the proliferation or willy nilly proliferation of satellites in space as being something that is actually in low Earth orbit becoming problematic, uh, so problematic that the United Nations or somebody may have to take action on this. Do, do you think that that changes the vector of, of, of what has been sort of a, a Wild West boom market? It might it
2: might throttle it a little bit, but if you look at the the plans that are out there across, you know, different businesses for everything from lower, you know, low, low Earth orbit Earth observation um, to uh, you know, like what Starlink is doing, you know, with you know, space based internet and other players, the number of satellites that are uh, projected to go in orbit over the next five to ten years, it's an increasing number, and it's it's literally tens of thousands. Um, for that to happen successfully, some sort of regime has to be put in place to make sure that these kind of collisions and so on and so forth don't happen. So, uh, you know, the Chinese raising the flag about that. um, In some ways, you might argue that's sort of a rich argument coming from them, given what they've done in the past in terms of space debris. But that being said, it's probably a good thing, right? Because it'll force the industry to become Um, put in some sort of regime to make sure that these collisions don't happen because as more and more stuff as you pointed out gets put into orbit it's just going to get more and more crowded up there Um, I don't think it's a issue that is lost on the industry I don't think it's being ignored um, but it's something for sure that's going to have to be uh, a point of focus as the commercial space industry becomes more mature, or you will have, you will inevitably, you'll start having collisions. And, and, and for a whole host of reasons, nobody wants that to happen. Sash?
1: I wanted to pick up actually on uh, Rich's point about how the Ukrainian tensions are incredibly good for air power. And it's not that I disagree with that, although it's quite interesting. If you look at European spending specifically on air power, most European nations uh, West, Central, East have now got a uh, fourth, four and a half, or fifth-generation uh, air power component. Um, European, you know, they're, they're arguably nowhere near big enough. They arguably don't have anything like the stocks of precision-guided munitions that that they would need. But Europeans have generally invested fairly consistently, and I mean everything's relative, in air power over the last twenty years or so. The big gaps. Um, and this really becomes very uncomfortable in the context of a uh, possible Russian land invasion of Ukraine. Is actually land forces and specifically heavy armor. And heavy armor feels terribly passe and 20th century and so forth, but it has horrible advantages in terms of survivability, in terms of uh, sustainability, the ability to actually, you know, hold at, or take and hold ground, all the sort of things that, that the Ukrainians arguably need. And certainly in terms of uh, the um, the three Baltic states and the Slovakia gap uh, uh, around the bottom of those and into, into Poland, um, heavy armour is going to arguably be a very important part of, of a, any continued NATO deterrent there. And I am gonna highlight, we, uh, uh, we, we did a study a, a couple of years back where we reckoned, uh, or our, our calculation, to be fair, was that for Europe to rearm in this area and to get back to a level where Europe would have about 10 very, very functional heavy armoured divisions. And remember, that compares... Um, uh, that, uh, that that compares with uh, seventy plus pre nineteen ninety, but ten armored divisions at a high level of uh, equipment would cost about uh, fifty billion euros in terms of uh, new equipment. If if Europe wanted to add another five divisions, that would add an, uh, cost another forty billion. And the other big area that I think is a chronic area of under underinvestment in in Europe is air defense. Um, we clearly are concerned. We the West, Europe, are concerned about uh, Russia's ability to create anti-access area denial zones, whether it's from Kaliningrad uh, or uh, along uh, the Russian border and over the Ukraine. Um, we certainly don't have the ability to create similar anti-access area denial zones uh, that would constrain uh, Russia in that respect. And our our, our estimate was that um, to build an, an, a, a better, let's say, an adequate Uh, Land-based integrated air defence and missile capability was again for Europe another forty billion. And what's been interesting since we wrote that was that spending on heavy armour has started. You know there are still some big programs going on in uh, in Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Um, but the spending on air defence has been lacking, and I think that's going to be one of the areas of catch up that we're going to see this year.
0: Just to just to follow up on that, right? You're you're talking about what the cost would be to address this. And you think that they will address it this year? But what appetite is there by European governments, and how much of that is reasonable that they will invest in? Right, the British government has uh, has made its plans. Right, I mean, obviously, every economy is still struggling in the wake of uh, Omicron. Uh, right, um, the, the people don't, governments do not have that much excess money left in their magazines. Uh, in, in, in in to some extent, and we've yet to see the impact of Brexit uh, and a whole bunch of other things from a, from a UK context, right? And even from a European context. Ultimately, how much of that amount are governments reasonably, do you think, inclined to spend, right? If you were going to bet on that. Is it 50% of that figure, 75%, 15%?
1: Look, this year, it's going to be a fraction of that. Uh, I mean, you, you, you never, they, these don't tend to be single year uh, expenditures. A country... Finland, decides to spend uh, 10, 12 billion on F-35s. The, the spending goes over a five to eight year period. And then, of course, there's the cost of keeping them in, them in service thereafter. Uh, but if you look, I mean, our view on defence is defence is uh, it's an insurance policy. Nobody likes to spend money on insurance because it's utterly neutral. You spend it because you have to. And therefore, it doesn't tend, the decision does not tend to be made in the context of budget deficits or otherwise, it's basically, you spend on defense or something far, far worse happens. Uh, and if you look at some of the big procurement programs that have been put in place, and I, I'm, I apologize for speaking in a very, very Eurocentric um, uh, uh, you know, uh, context, but I think it, it's very interesting. If you look at some of the really big uh, procurements that have been uh, made over this period, uh, over the last two to three years, governments have gone out And started to spend uh, on programs which have been multiples of their entire defense budget. You know, I mean, the the Finnish F thirty five program is bigger than the Finnish defense budget. The Swiss F thirty five procurement is bigger than the Swiss defense budget. So. They are. And then if you look at the big armor programs, you know, Poland m one's Czech Republic looking at infantry fighting vehicles, Slovakia, similarly, they are spending a very high proportion or committing very high proportion of the current defense budget uh, on on, on those programs. They're not tending to be constrained by what's going on with COVID at the moment. It's a, you know, uh, it's a real process of we have to spend this or else. And that, I think, is what is uh, is. So interesting about the, the decisions that a lot of European governments, but clearly we're seeing this globally, make when they're faced with a very, very real uh, threat. We're you know, certainly seeing this in, in Asia, uh, where governments are looking at um, the potential Chinese threat. Richard? Not to sound like a commercial for air power, but I, I
3: think there are a number of things that need to be taken into account when looking at why I think there is a growing budgetary shift in favor of air power. Ukraine is a very good example. What do you have there? strategic depth and lots of it what do you not want? under under any circumstances uh, a clash of arms and armor on a, on a <laughs> central land front with russia you just don't want that uh you know how many centuries uh, does it take of history um if there is any kind of conflict hopefully not a full-up shooting war but it will involve um the use of western force you know just conceivably, hopefully not, but a a no-fly zone in some areas, an assertion of air sovereignty, um, obviously uh, a desire for the situational awareness you get with airborne ISR assets, uh, everything like that. Um, If it comes down to armor, if, you know, my God, all bets were off, you know, and I think in terms of what air power can do for you, given that strategic depth, if you need to support Uh, local forces or partisans or whatever, it it just becomes an overwhelmingly good investment, especially should, should, you know, should you look at the example of Finland or Poland or anyone like that, the desire to assert your own air sovereignty becomes uh, enormously important at some point. And of course, the most uh, you know, recent generation of air vehicles has a kind of integrated ISR capability that's important for that situational awareness. So I think a higher percentage of defense budgets are being spent on air power, and that includes air systems too, missiles and whatever else, um, for frankly, all the right understandable strategic reasons. Uh, But but that
0: would presuppose right capability is very, very important, but even more important is a willingness to use the capability. Right. And if I'm sitting in Moscow, it doesn't matter what our capabilities are. Countries have not expressed an interest to use that capability. And again, if you're the most ruthless operator or one of the three or four most ruthless operators in the international system, uh, to put this in Kissingerian terms, does it really matter if you have F-35s if you're not interested in using
3: them? Very reasonable point, except that, you know, look, which is more credible, the idea of using F-35s or whatever aircraft to say, okay, the Western part of the Ukraine, no, we demand the right of air power passage over it, period. It is a sovereign territory or the deployment of an armor brigade. The second one just isn't happening. It just isn't. Whereas, you know, you you could say the first one is, or we are guaranteeing the air borders of say, I don't know, Finland, because they've expressed an interest in joining NATO or something like that. They might have a serious credibility issue in Europe, less so in Asia, obviously, and less so in the Middle East. Those are areas where, of course, well, we're we're far closer to a tinderbox, unfortunately. But you're absolutely right. In Europe, there is a credibility issue. What credibility there is... I would argue, a cruise to air power rather than, yeah, an armor brigade. Uh,
0: Ron, I want to bring you back into this because one of the things as we were preparing for this, um, you raised uh, the question of whether or not there would be decoupling, right? I mean, we've been talking uh, about that with China uh, for some years. I mean, I'm one of the people who thinks this is, is, it's very, very hard um, to continue business as usual as long as China is doing what it's, what it's doing, whether it's in Hong Kong, whether it's in Shenzhen, whether it's in, against Taiwan, whether it's against any one of a number of other nations uh, in the region, right? I mean, China is trying to set the conditions of winning without fighting, um, you know, and, and countries in the region don't necessarily want to go along with that, uh, returning to a world where might makes right. And as long as you're big, you can dictate terms to somebody who's small, ultimately, where is this storyline going? Because Wall Street, right? I mean, you and I talk to uh, investors, and every once in a while, I mean, it's sort of, you can see the, I don't want to say lack of thinking, right? It's like, muscularly, we have to stand up to China, or it's an appeasist, uh, well, wait a minute, almost a Boeing-like message. Well, wait a minute, a third of my markets in China. I mean, you can't punish China, and that's the reason why the, the United States and its allies have been soft against China, whether it's Germany or Britain or anybody else, right? Folks are changing their tune, but for the longest time, it was a very important market and we can't afford to alienate them to the point where you know UK was considering outsourcing its, you know, selling its nuclear power industry for God's sakes to the Chinese. So give us a sense on where do you think that storyline is going to go over over the coming year and whether investors are going to start becoming more tolerant. Of a tougher line, right? Have we have we crossed any intellectual Rubicons there from an investor standpoint? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, Margo. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and I, I think we have. I think
2: the the pandemic changed things. If you think about the investor psyche around investing in China pre-pandemic and today, it it's it's changed for sure. Um, where it goes to from here, I think is really going to be dictated by China's actions. Um, and if, as you pointed out, China continues to do what it's been doing, right? I mean, there's been, you know, multiple press outlets in Hong Kong that have been shut down. And if, if they continue down that path, it seems almost inevitable to me that a decoupling on, on some level will, will occur. Um, now, I think and this is just one person's opinion, right? So I'm not speaking for Bank of America here. Right. But it, it seems like the, you know, the Chinese are very cognizant about I mean, their, their needs too, right? It's not just a big market for us, but um, they, they need to export goods and so on and so forth. I mean, they're very integrated in the global economy, unlike the Soviets were back in the day. And I think they're cognizant of that. So how the decoupling would play out over what time frame and what way, I mean, it's not exactly clear to me, but it does seem, you know, as they go down this path that on on some level that decoupling in in aerospace is almost inevitable. Uh, And the program that we do keep an eye on is the 919, um, you know, 919 version one, whatever you want to call it. might not be the most optimal airplane, but there most certainly will be a version two and a version three, and where that goes and how much of uh, Chinese domestic demand they can satiate with that program, I think will be an uh, an important thing to watch. And it's you know it's kind of like you know you can't if you take the the Boeing point of view and it's a you know, it's a big market. We can't. It's sort of like a flood, and you and you put the sandbags up. Sooner or later, the floodwaters come through. I mean, you can't stop them from pursuing what they want to pursue on their own national terms. Um, so, so we'll see, but I mean, maybe that's a sort of a long-winded answer to that. I think you will continue to see movement towards decoupling over time. And I think it's just a matter of what, what time frame. you know, is it, is it five years? Is it 10 years? Um, that's, that's an open question to me.
0: Um, let's uh, go quickly around the horn. And then I have one last question, uh, for all of you, which is, um, you know, a couple of years ago, Ron, I remember at uh, one of the Bank of uh, America, uh, the conference uh, that you guys host that we cooperate on uh, every year, right? The question was, what's the black swan event? And one of the people at the table said, what about a global pandemic and what that means? Which I thought was very, very uh, prescient. Uh, that was in early 2019 where that question was was asked. And it was astonishing that by the end of that year, that's exactly what we were uh, coping with uh, and, uh, you know, what what it would uh, drive. Um Sash and and Richard just want to get your guys' uh, sense on the China point uh, before we go on to what you guys think are going to be sort of the the Black Swan or other uh, dramatic things uh, that may, may not be on people's minds but maybe should be. Go ahead, uh, Sash.
1: Following on Ron's point on the C nine one nine, I'm you know Richard and I I think just disagree about the or slightly about the C nine one nine. I'm a I'm a, a, a fan of the C nine one nine because I think it will be good enough for some Chinese airlines to take a significant proportion of domestic market share and it needs to be no better than that uh, for it to make life very uncomfortable initially for Boeing and then uh, thereafter for, uh, for Airbus. I think the you know the rise of China as an aerospace power may well be a many many decade uh, process if only because their aero engine technology is genuinely decades uh, either their airframe technology or what's available from uh, from the West, but you know they'll, they'll get they'll get close enough. And it, given that it may become a more closed economy, it doesn't have to be that great. It's just got to be good enough for the for the big three uh, Chinese airlines. Um, and you know then the world looks very different in terms of sort of relative market shares uh, for uh, the, the Western civil aerospace companies. Richard. Um, Yeah, first of all, I completely agree with uh, Ron's sandbag
3: analogy. I think it does have a certain feeling that there's um, an inevitability of decoupling. But in commercial aviation, uh, you know, I keep coming back to that phrase, it's a bad marriage with uh, limited possibilities of divorce. You know, Sasha's point about the 919 is correct. It's good enough, except very big. I think he has uh, underestimated the appetite of the U.S. government under Trump and now exactly the same under Biden to pursue a very muscular policy here. And that means that the more they close their borders and the more they mandate that airlines take C919s, the more it is likely that they are cut off from building the 919. The 919 is not really a Chinese aircraft. It has a superficial Chinese exterior. Everything inside that makes it move, especially the engines, is in fact either Western or the US. and To recreate all of that to the point where they would have true autarky, yes, decades. Absolutely right, especially, as I says, in the turbine department. So this is a gradual, gradual, gradual process. I think the current plan is to ramp up to about 95, 919s. We'll see if they ever get anywhere near there. But let's let's say that is a reasonable number without triggering a complete cutoff of all of the necessary componentry. You know, at its peak, the China market was good for 360 per year. Um, Let's assume they're not gonna be at their peak, but it's still gonna be a few hundred. Yeah, that's probably a reasonable scenario, getting back to Ron's sandbag and flood analogy, but I just think it's gonna take a lot longer to play out because of the fundamental weaknesses of the enabling technology in the Chinese commercial aviation industry.
0: Let's move to your guys' sort of black swan predictions for the year or stuff that you think people are uh, should be paying more attention to that they are not. Go ahead, Ron. Start us off and then Sachin and then Richard, wrap us up.
2: Yeah, so one of the things that I think that would be a, a very positive surprise, um, if Boeing actually does the right thing, um, if we start getting some messaging from the company that um, they are going to make some investments in engineering and really pursue a plane and, and address some of the issues that we've brought up over you know, the last couple of years on this podcast. Um, I think that would be seen as a, as a positive thing. Um, on the negative side, what could be, I don't think is in many people's thinking is if we were to see uh, a major paralyzing cyber attack on one of the major nations in Europe or in the US. Um, I think that would catch a
0: lot of people off guard. Sash? Right. Although I, I just want to say just, right, I mean, Boeing, uh, Boeing executives uh, counter Richard your point, right? They say they're not interested in breaking the company up. That's totally absurd and that uh, that their CEO and the management team is is managing uh, a difficult time uh, as best uh, they can. And they're keeping their strategic options open and looking to deliver on programs if I have uh, the company's side of the story. So I feel like I, I'm compelled to say that as we, we start uh, 2022, even if we have been very, very critical about the company's performance on this program, and, and so have, have have very many uh, others, although investors uh, seem, by and large, to be playing a short game, right? And so they're satisfied with that. Um, Sash, give us give us your take uh, on, on the unexpected or maybe, uh, right, I mean, a gray rhino that's bearing down on us, uh, right? Constant bearing, decreasing range, and hits us anyway, even though we've been tracking it for a long time. And then Richard, of course, wrap us up. Go ahead, Sash.
1: I think a, a, a positive would be for the two European fighter aircraft programs, uh, SCAF, uh, FCAS, uh, Franco-German, uh, Spanish, and Tempest, UK, uh, Swedish, Italian. Were those to merge and therefore there to be a single European uh, next generation combat aircraft program, that would be fantastic. That would save a... Uh, a ton of money it would suggest that relations within europe uh had been restored, particularly post brexit but you know there's all sorts of um, uh, conflicts or tensions between other nations in Europe, but it would suggest that you know those have that they'd looked over all of those and decided that overall. Uh, European industry European military capabilities uh, were much better served by a merger of two uh, two programs than not I think it incredibly unlikely but that's the whole point of, of Black Swan events that they are uh, they are way either side of the uh, you know any normal distribution curve um, the negative I think I don't think that any investors are pricing in a conflict in Europe a, a, a high end, peer-on-peer conflict in Europe uh, properly. Every conflict that European countries have been involved in in the last 30 years has been somewhere else, somewhere nice and convenient where we can, you know, try technologies out in the sandbox. Sometimes we don't get our political goals, fact, most of the time we don't. But it it has had no comeback into Europe. The um, point that Ron made about, you know, a cyber attack, a major cyber attack on a European nation uh, I think it would be a horrible wake up call. But I think that, um, you know, conflict and all these things are always unintended, uh, to some extent, uh, but conflict in Europe would be uh, something that investors just have not priced in. It's it's too difficult, too inconvenient. Uh, and I think that would that would be the, you know, that's the, sh- the shock I would worry about.
0: And and that could be a shock that's sooner rather than later, uh, given uh, russia's uh russia's rhetoric right and it's it's you know that it may be willing that it's that it's its own economy is disconnected enough from europe and safe enough from europe uh and american uh sanctions that um uh that they and international sanctions that they could get away with it uh, richard they,
1: yeah yeah you, and and i'm and, and sorry and, and they think that they can isolate ukraine enough that they that uh, uh there would be no contagion uh
0: exactly exactly so and that countries like uh, Germany, for example, will pick that middle ground. France will want to moderate it. Right. Uh, and, and, and ultimately, right. I mean, there are many who are making the case, I mean, you know, B- British officer friends of mine uh, would make the case that we've expanded far enough that the Baltics shouldn't have been in it. And certainly extending to Ukraine and Georgia, uh, the dangling NATO membership was a very, very bad and very, uh, be- very bad idea. Right. And, and ultimately. That's that's where we are. Richard, uh, we're running a little bit long on the program. Go ahead, bring us home.
3: Yeah, you know, I'm intrigued by and completely agree with the uh, the rhinos and swans postulated by uh, Sash and and Ron. Ron, in particular, the the Boeing scenario. Absolutely. Please, you know, make us happy. <laughs> we need leadership from Boeing to bulk up on engineering and return the company to its roots. Until then, I have no idea what the base case scenario is. Yeah, breaking up the company is just its just an extreme departure scenario, or maybe just a departure scenario, but they got to show us they're serious about something, show some leadership. Um, now, in terms of what my I'll throw this out as an idea, you know, as, I, as I would in person at, your, uh, at one of your marvelous uh, uh, conference dinners. You know, I, for me, there've been a series of, uh, well, climate related or unrelated or whatever, natural disasters in the world last year. And you talk to young people, it's not just Greta Thunberg <laughs> and her acolytes. There are a lot of people who think we've reached the limits of growth. And I'm not saying this is my view, but you talk to an awful lot of young people, the people who should be proud of their travel experiences out there and flying all over and having, you know, hen parties in Slovakia or whatever else. And they're playing it safe, not just the pandemic, but just because of a feeling that, you know, we should do less of this. And I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but you know, you have another year of a series of, of horrible climate disasters. And just this view really takes hold and it begins to show up in the numbers when it comes time to recover you know, in the air travel industry and return to our historically normal, you know, 5% plus growth year over year. And it just isn't there because of this different mindset. I think this could be the year that takes hold conceivably. I don't want it to, um, but I'm concerned about it.
0: Um, I, I would, uh, just for what it's worth, anecdotally, the number of my friends, uh, uh, Richard, who've said things similar, let's not do unnecessary travel. Are there better ways for getting there? Can we take a train? Uh, is there? Should we take? Uh, uh, should we drive somewhere uh, as a as a vacation as opposed to try? You know, wh- let's not be wasteful about this. There are people who've told me, "Hey, the Washington D.C. area has so many great things. Do I necessarily have to go to Venice to see Venice? Right? Why don't Why don't I? We drive to the Grand Canyon. Why don't we go to Falls Church? Why don't we go to Front Royal? uh, and, and, and to, uh, the mountains that way. Right. I mean, and it's funny that you, you hear that sort of thing a little bit more and it's tied to, Hey, let's, let's not be as wasteful. And, and there is, you know, there are a lot of riches that we can see far closer to us, uh, instead of necessarily flying, uh, to, um, uh, you know, Iceland to see the Aurora, for example.
3: Yep. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's the, you know, for me, it's, it's the, you know, the one wild card that could assert itself this year. Uh, from my standpoint, uh, as it turns out, uh, the family and I are, in theory at least, going to Venice next month.
0: <laughs> I, I wasn't, by the way, trying to bust on, on Venice. And and do you guys think that we're over the big pandemic hump, or are there more humps? The, the, this we, this one's got to be sort of 10 seconds for each of you, because we can talk more about this next week, but go ahead. Are we over the big pandemic hump mid-January, or are we going to keep seeing more of this, or is this sort of the last big gasp, and, and we've been through this over the last... Uh, two years now, right? So you, you don't want to kind of overdo it, but go go ahead.
3: I was going to say, you know, you look at Delta, you look at Omicron, they're unpleasant from the standpoint of human uh, suffering, but in terms of impact on the travel numbers, just not that huge. In other words, it's, it's the same trajectory, the same recovery. It, it's just suffering from momentary disruptions that last a few months we could have a few more but i still don't have much doubt that we're going to get back to the peak sometime in well probably early
2: 2023 ron yeah i mean it's um yeah i i guess yeah, i didn't see omicron coming why would i um our forecasts take that into account i mean it's it's sadly it takes me back to maybe sort of an odd comment but if you look at uh, when the Boston Marathon got bombed, the S&P 500 hit new highs that day. And point being, um, the market gets used to this stuff. We learn how to live with it. We expected it. So with each coming wave, uh, unless something dramatically changes, you know, society is learning how to live live with it, work around it. Um, and the real variable to me becomes um, just cross-border traffic. And once that gets figured out, we should be well on our way to recover.
0: Sash, last word.
1: Uh, i I feel that it's burning out uh, I think that uh, you know the fact that uh, omicron is uh, it spreads faster but doesn't do as much damage it is not as severe uh, when it impacts people you know fingers crossed touch with all those things um, that's what you'd expect towards the you know the back end of uh, a pandemic as this disease becomes endemic um, and if that's the case then, We should start to see a recovery uh, in air travel, Um, you know, and we will debate which year and which quarter it happens there after. But it hasn't been. Omicron has been severe in terms of numbers, but not in terms uh, of numbers of people infected and the speed with which it's happened. But it has not been as severe in terms of hospitalizations and deaths, thankfully.
0: Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. Absolute pleasure looking back to getting to regular order. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to our audience. Hope you all had great holidays uh, and certainly looking forward to a very happy, a very healthy and a very prosperous 2022. Guys, thanks very much again.
2: Yeah, great to be here, Vaga. Wouldn't be a weekend without
1: you. Thanks very much again, Vago. Happy New Year to you all.
3: Yes, Happy New Year to all. And thanks very much for doing this, Vago. It's great to be uh, back on again.
0: And congratulations on your first two days at the new place. <laughs>